You know, have you ever had an experience in your life where something is oversold? You know, I'm walking in the door tonight, Maggie and V looked at me and said, tonight, these are going to be the world's best announcements. You know, and, you know, they were kind of the world's average announcements, right? Okay, I made that up. They did not tell me that. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, if you're cooking, if you want to make a chocolate chip, cook, chocolate chip cookie, right, which is kind of hard to master, you go to Google, you don't type in the world's average chocolate chip cookie, right? You type in the world's greatest chocolate chip cookie, and then you bake them, and what do they taste like? An average chocolate chip cookie, right? Or how about that scene in the movie Elf? You know what I'm talking about, where Will Ferrell walks up to the restaurant, the diner, and they have the neon sign that says, world's best cup of coffee. And he walks in and says, congratulations, you did it. <laughs> and everyone else knew it was sarcasm except Will Ferrell, right? It's just an iconic scene. So because it feels like Christmas, why don't we just pause the young adults and we'll watch Elf tonight instead, right? Or, you know, I think of my wife. Um, she doesn't have a traditional love language. You know the love language. There's five of them. There's a sixth one we've added. It's not gift giving. It's not acts of service. It's garage sailing and thrifting. <laughs> if you want to see something incredible, follow her on Goodwill. It, it, what she can find, seriously, the amount of money that she has saved our family from buying things secondhand is remarkable. But I enjoy going garage sailing with her. It's fun. And in the month of May, there's garage sales everywhere. Every community has a garage sale. And if you looked at our family calendar, it's like Marathon Garage Sale, Woodbury Garage Sale. Like every weekend is a garage selling weekend. So, but what I've learned from garage selling with Hannah is you drive around town and you will always come across a sign that says mega sale or giant sale or multifamily warehouse sale or huge sale. You know what I'm talking about, right? Have you ever gone to those garage sales? Without exception, every time it's a giant junk sale. Every time. It's overpriced junk. They don't have very much stuff. So if you see the sign mega sale, run the other direction. It's not <laughs> worth your time. See, we've all had an experience in life when something is oversold. But how about the opposite? Have you ever had an experience in your life when something's undersold? You walk into that restaurant for the first time and you think it's going to be a, like six or seven out of 10, and it's a nine out of 10, like I'm coming back here, right? Or you drive up to that garage sale expecting it's going to be your average garage sale, and you realize it was the best secondhand treasures you've ever found in your life, right? We've all had moments where things are oversold and when things are undersold. Even in the Christian life, even in Christian lingo, the same thing happens. Sometimes there's things that are oversold and things that are undersold. And there's actually two phrases that we use that I use all of the time that fall into the category of being undersold. The bad news and the good news. You know the word good news. Good news, it comes from the Greek word euangelion. It's where we get the word gospel. When we talk about the gospel, the good news here at church, here's what we're talking about. The good news of Jesus coming, living in our place, dying in our place, so that we could have new life. It's the good news of what Jesus has done for us. It's not just good news. It's the greatest conceivable news. But before we have the good news, we have the bad news. And the bad news is that our sin separates us from God. The bad news is that we've earned by our sin eternal separation from God in a literal lake of fire. That's not just bad news. I mean, think of how you and I use the phrase bad news. Ah, I got bad news. My car needs a new transmission. 
uh, bad news that snowed on the first day of May, right? That's how we use the word bad news. But compare that to eternal conscious punishment away from the presence of God. That's not just on a different continent compared to how we use bad news that's in a different galaxy. But the same is true of the good news, isn't it? It's not just average news. It's not just 75-degree weather in the month of April or a $2 an hour raise. It's the greatest conceivable news that's beyond our comprehension with the greatest possible outcome. So our passage tonight is Isaiah 59. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah. And this is an incredible passage from the Old Testament that talks us through both the bad news and the good news of the gospel. One pastor puts it like this, the gospel teaches us that we're more sinful and wicked than we can imagine, but we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we could hope or dream. We have to know what we're saved from to know what we're saved to. And sometimes I feel like the Christian community can try to soften the bad news. We think things like, you know, if I just don't mention hell, then maybe they'll accept my message. Or if we just focus on God's love and his grace, then we'll make Christianity more palatable. Or maybe we like to lessen the bad news for our own sake. I'm not really that bad. I'm, I'm, I'm better than most people. And if we reduce the sin in our own life, it makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. Isaiah doesn't let us get away with that tonight. But he doesn't leave us there starts with bad news and then takes us to the best possible news. It's a fire sermon. That was for you, Brian and Johnny. Not my sermon, Isaiah's sermon. But he doesn't leave us in the dark. He takes us to the good news. So look at 59, 1 and 2. That's where we're going to start tonight. This is part two of the sermon Isaiah started last week. Behold... The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Okay, we're going to pause there, and I just want to make a couple quick theological observations from the first two verses. You notice that Isaiah attributes human characteristics to God. He gives God a face and ears, and hands, arms? How does that work? Does God have an arm? Do you have a face? No. When we see the title, the Lord, in the Old Testament, even in verse 51, you'll notice that L-O-R-D is in all caps but lowercase. That's a signal that the Hebrew word used is the word Yahweh, the Lord. It's the official title of God the Father in the Old Testament. Now, God the Father is spirit. He doesn't have a human representation, manifestation. But think about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's Colossians 1.15. Or the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus made the invisible visible. That's the beauty of the incarnation, God taking on human form and human flesh. But God the Father doesn't have an arm, doesn't have an eye. That's one of the reasons that God the Father hates idolatry. 
Think of the Old Testament when God absolutely prohibited any idol. That's what happened to the golden calf, that the Israelites were actually trying to make a representation of God to worship. And God hated idolatry because no, there's no way that any human could create a, a physical picture, a physical representation of God. So then why does Isaiah attribute some of these human characteristics to God? It's actually called an anthropomorphism. Everyone say that with me. Anthropomorphism. There, you learned a huge word. Don't ask me how to spell it, right? Why? Because sometimes if we just think of God as beyond us, as above us, as separate from us, we forget how close he is, that he's here with us. God is near and far. He's transcendent and imminent. He is great and good. And Isaiah's reminding us of how involved God is in our life day to day. But did you notice the claim in verse 1? Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it can't save, his ear dull that it can't hear. Flip that around. What are the people claiming? The Israelites are saying, God's hand is shortened. He can't save. His ear is dull. He can't hear. The Israelites are looking at their life. They, they see their suffering. They see the Assyrians knocking on their door and they're saying, God, where are you? God, why aren't you saving us? God, why aren't you doing anything about my circumstances? And then they conclude, well, God must not be all powerful. He must be limited in power because he's not saving us. This is actually a very early version of what philosophers would call the Epicurean trilemma. It sounds intense, but it's really simple. There's just three parts. If God was all powerful, then he could prevent evil. If God was all loving, then he would prevent evil. Therefore, if God is all powerful and all loving, then why does evil exist? It's a philosophical argument that some use to disprove the existence of God. But you can see how that fits in with the first statement. If God was all powerful, then he could prevent evil. The Israelites doubted God's power. They, they're thinking God's limited in power, and that's why he's not preventing evil in our world. Let me put verse 59 in more modern day language. Here's what they're saying. Behold, God has alligator arms. His arms are short that he can't save. God forgot to put in his hearing aids today. He can't hear. That's what they're claiming. They're accusing God of having limited power. Is that why God's not answering their prayer? No, it's not. He's not answering their prayer to save them because of their disobedience. They've rejected God. They've abandoned their covenant. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, which outlines the blessings and the curses of the Old Testament covenant. Isaiah is just preaching Deuteronomy 28. The people rejected God. Therefore, God is bringing discipline into their life. So why are they surprised? Don't you think they would have read Deuteronomy 28 and understood? Well, they were blind to their own blindness. They couldn't see their sin. They had a rosy view of their own depravity, and they tried to lessen the effect of the bad news. They failed to see the effect of their sin. It's the first thing that we need to understand tonight, if you're taking notes, is comprehend the consequence of sin. Comprehend the consequence of sin. Verse 2 explains in a clearest possible way the absolute extent of our sin. Look at verse 2 again. But your iniquities, iniquity is just a fancy word for sin. Your sin have made a separation between you and your God. You see what Isaiah is saying. 
that by our own sinful behavior, by our evil, by our rebellion against God, which none of us are immune from, we've created a separation, a chasm, a gap, the size of the Grand Canyon in our relationship with God, one we could never dream of crossing. Because the effect of sin in our life is remarkably personal. Sin is not just out there, sin is in here. Romans 3 reminds us that everyone has sinned, everyone's fallen short of God's glory. Romans 6 reminds us that the wage, what we earn from our sin is death, not just earthly death, but eternal death, eternal separation from God. The New Testament writers use a couple different words to describe that eternal separation. Jesus describes that place as unquenchable fire with weeping and gnashing of teeth. John in Revelation calls this place a lake of fire where there's torment forever. That's the consequence, the just consequence of our sin. Bad news seems like a little bit of an understatement, doesn't it? Now, because of our sin, we've created this divide in our relationship with God, one we can't cross. But even after we have a relationship with God, even after Jesus bridges that gap for us, we'll get to that, we see in our text that our sin can still cause a a break, a wall in our communication with God. There's a, a phrase in pop Christianity that sounds really nice, but it's a myth. It goes like this. God listens to all prayers. Ever heard that before? It sounds really nice. It's a really encouraging tweet, but it's not biblical. Look at verse two. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Interesting. Because of the sin of the Israelites, God did not hear their prayer. Now, God's sovereign. God knows all. He sees all. He understands all. He's sovereign over all. God knows every thought that anyone has ever thought throughout all time. Don't even try to wrap your mind around how much knowledge that is. It hurts. So we're not saying that God doesn't have the capacity to hear all prayer. No, I think what this text is saying is that God does not listen. God does not answer every prayer. I think it's what we see in Psalm 66, verse 18. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to what the psalmist says. If I had cherished iniquity, there's that word again. If I cherished iniquity, sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Interesting cherished iniquity. I think for the psalmist, that seems to be more than just a, a passing sin that we don't realize we committed. This seems to be an unconfessed, unrepentant, willful rebellion against God. And if we're living in that sort of a way, the psalmist tells us, I think Isaiah tells us, that God won't listen to our prayer. Now, that shouldn't terrify us, but it should remind us that if we know Christ, confession needs to be a regular part of the Christian life. Sometimes we get into a rhythm where we confess our sin once a month, the first Sunday of the month when we show up to Highland and take communion. And that's the only time we search our heart and we ask God to forgive us. Confession should be something we do every day, asking that God might reveal to us our sin and give us the strength to confess. So I think in the first couple verses of our text, we see the effect of sin. But as Isaiah continues his sermon, we get a glimpse of the reach, the pervasiveness of sin. Look at verse 3. 
Isaiah 59. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are the works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to do evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there's no justice in their paths. They've made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Let's pause there. <laughs> it's quite the resume of sin, isn't it? It's quite the indictment from Isaiah. It's a scathing report. The people were guilty. There was no way that they could plead innocent after these claims. And the sins here, they fall in the same category as the sins from last week, seem to be under the umbrella of social injustices. They were oppressing the poor, uh, enslaving the underprivileged, taking advantage of the outcasts, refusing to help those in need. But more than just talking about what they did, Isaiah goes deeper. He goes to the heart on what their heart looked like when they were giving into sin. And that's what we see as our second principle tonight, discern the depth of sin. Discern the depths of, depth of sin. You know, as, as I think through the verses we just read, I just want to make three observations about sin. I know subpoints tonight, we're getting really serious. Sin is radically pervasive. Sin is radically pervasive. Look at the end of verse 4. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. It's hard to miss the birth analogy, isn't it? They don't just stumble into sin accidentally. It's not just a passing thought. No, sin came from deep inside of Isaiah's audience. And the truth is it comes from deep inside of us as well. Because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, sin and brokenness entered God's perfect creation. There's no aspect of creation that's not influenced by the devastating effects of sin. We experience sin every day when we feel the pull, the allure towards sin. We experience sin every moment we suffer the symptoms of that virus that's going around. We feel the effect of sin every time we enter into the funeral of that family member or that friend when we know that this is not the way things are supposed to be, there's no part of God's world that's not influenced by sin. But then look at verse 7. Their feet run to do evil. They are swift to shed blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are their highways. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? He's not saying that sin is just the back alley. No, sin is their highway. He's not just talking about their actions. He's talking about their, their heart, the, the thoughts that they have about sin, their eagerness, their feet are running to evil. See, our world teaches us that the human heart is basically good. We see that all around our culture. We see it politically all around the world, that people at their core are morally upright. That's not what God's Word teaches. God's Word teaches us that humanity is completely depraved, that human hearts at their core are not basically good, are basically evil. And sin influences every part of our life. 
That's the bad news, that there is no escape personally. There's no escape globally from the painful consequences of sin. And because of our sin, because of our depravity, we are unable to choose God on our own. We need God to initiate that work of transformation inside of us because we don't just need coronary bypass surgery. We need a new heart. We need a heart transplant. Sin is radically pervasive. I'm afraid if we saw the reach, the roots of sin for what they are in our own life, I think we might be horrified. But number two, sub point two, sin is, radic- or is rarely individual. Sin is rarely individual. This is subtle in this section. Maybe it's anecdotal, but I think it's significant. The pronouns here are not singular, they're plural. And the picture in Isaiah 58 and 59 is not an individual sin, it's a communal sin. The Israelites participated in sin as a community, not just as individual people. See, we like to think of sin, frankly, we like to think of everything as Americans as hyper-individualistic. We like to talk about my personal relationship with God, my personal quiet time. I'm going to accept Jesus into my heart. Yes, our relationship with God is individual, but sometimes we miss uh, out on the communal aspect of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But here, the sins that the Israelites were committing were not just individual, they were communal, they were sinning as a group. But sometimes we like to think of our sin struggles as just between me and God, and there are no consequences over here. That's a lie from the enemy. Sin is rarely individual. The horrifying nature of sin is that it doesn't just affect me. Sin affects others. The consequences are not just personal, they're corporate. There's no such thing as a victimless sin. Individual sin influences the community. You know this to be true. I don't need to prove this to you. You know that the sin of a mom and a dad influences their kids. And some of you carry that baggage in your backpack. You know that the sin of a brother influences the sister. You know that the sin of a church member influences the rest of the body. Sometimes we like to believe the lie that our sin is just individual. That doesn't affect anyone else. Probably the most common sin that I hear falling in this category is pornography and personal sexual sin. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you're not even dating. And you think, ah, I'll figure this out someday. Once I'm dating, then I'll have the motivation to kick this habit and I'll be fine. The sin is, it's just between me and God. Me and God. It's not hurting anyone. You ever believed that before? It's actually a lie from the enemy. See, what I get to do in my job is I get to talk to individuals on the dating engaged Mary side of that conversation. I promise that is not a victimless sin. That even the sins that we commit today have consequences down the road. I wish it wasn't true. Now, can God provide incredible forgiveness and healing and reconciliation from sin of the past? Absolutely. But don't believe the lie that that sin today is victimless. Don't believe the lie. It's not affecting anyone. Or how about this? A sin I know none of us ever struggle with. Laziness. You realize when you became a Christian, Holy Spirit invaded your life, that he gave you a a gift, a spiritual gift, a gift that's designed to serve God's church, 
which needs to be used within the local church, all of you have one. You know that? But I think sometimes, as young adults, it's easy to do our own thing. Maybe it's easy to be lazy and not engage the gifts that God's given us. We maybe don't think of that as a sin because we don't know what we're missing out on. The church doesn't know what it's missing out on. But I love the imagery in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14 of a, of a body. That if one member of the body isn't healthy, then the rest of the body is suffering, right? It's not meant to be a guilt trip to everyone to start signing up to serve a highland, but I want us to think that even a struggle with laziness influences the church body, even though we like to think it's just my problem. It doesn't affect anybody else. The painful reality of sin is that it's never personal. Don't believe that lie. Third subpoint: sin is deceitfully disguised. Sin is deceitfully disguised. You saw that in the text. You saw the reference to the adder. It's a poisonous snake. Here's the, the picture um, that Isaiah is painting. It's a word picture. I enjoy eating eggs for breakfast. Usually, you know, three, four days a week, have some eggs. I'll make them. Hannah will make them. It always tastes better if Hannah makes them. But imagine tomorrow morning I get out some eggs right from the garden. Looks like it came from a chicken, right? And I crack it on the counter, open it up, and instead of a beautiful egg yolk, out crawls this poisonous viper, right? That's the picture that Isaiah paints in this text. That on the outside, sin looks attractive. It looks looks tasty even. But then on the inside, it's filled with deadly poison. Do we think about sin as a deadly poison? Not usually. That series you've been watching on Netflix that seems to have that sex scene in it like every episode. Did you know that's deadly poison that's trying to kill you? It's not just neutral. Or how about this? That web of lies that you're caught in. It's deadly poison. How about the filthy language, not only that you're absorbing, but you're using over and over again? It's deadly poison. We have to understand that the goal of sin is not to prosper us, it's to kill us. And it always overpromises and underdelivers. Always promises greater, greater pleasure than we'll receive, and it promises less consequences than we receive. The reality is Isaiah's sermon is not just a picture of Israel's heart. It's a picture of mine. This is a picture of your heart, if what your heart looks like before you know Christ. Or if you walked in the door tonight, didn't have, don't have a relationship with Jesus, haven't yet turned from your sin and followed him, then this is what a, your heart looks like tonight. I wish there was an easy way around that. I wish I could soften that, but, but I can't. That's the reality of the bad news. All of us are utterly guilty with no way of escaping eternal condemnation. Now that leaves us with a choice. What do we do? Do we look in the mirror, see our sin, 
and slam the door and say, not my problem, not dealing with this? Or do we humble ourselves and agree with God and say, I've got a problem, I need some help? I'm a bit surprised. But Isaiah's audience actually has a pretty good response. Look at verse 12. God's not talking anymore. Now the people are talking. For our transgressions, another word for sin, are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. The tone changes, doesn't it? That the people respond to God's accusation, his guilty verdict, and they agree with him. And I appreciate that they go deeper than just saying, yeah, we, we hurt other people, we damage our relationships. No, they go to the top and they say, yeah, we've turned back from following God. We've denied him. They understood the root of the issue. That as, as Isaiah concludes his sermon, he gives us a picture of how to respond to sin. So that's our third principle tonight. Realize the right response to sin. The right response to sin starts with us. It starts with confession. Confession simply means that we agree with God. Agreeing with God's guilty verdict, agreeing with, his, agreeing with his standard of morality, agreeing that we're sinners, because confession requires humility to admit that we're not good enough to save ourselves. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus, I feel, gives us a, in parable form, a microcosm of Isaiah 58 and 59. He tells us a parable. You know a parable. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And here's what Jesus says. Listen to this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other tax collector. You know the difference, right? Pharisee, they were the self-righteous guys who were often opposing Jesus' ministry, who thought they were the best of the best. And then there's tax collectors. They were the scum of society. They were the traitors, the Jews who betrayed their own people, collected money for the Romans, and then often extorted money from their people. Everyone hated tax collectors. You think people dislike the IRS today? Not even close to how much people hated tax collectors back in Jesus' day. So we've got two very opposite people. One that was regarded by society, and another a tax collector that was absolutely hated. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself would be humbled, but the one who humbles himself 
will be exalted. I love the simplicity of that phrase. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We see two completely opposite responses to sin. One is one of pride. One says, I'm self-righteous. I can do this on my own. Look at all that I've accomplished for God. And then the other cries out for mercy because we know we can't save ourselves. Confession, repentance, and humility. Have you accepted responsibility for your own sin? Have you admitted to God that you can't save yourself? And have you cried out to God for rescue? asking him to save you because of what Jesus said on the cross. None of us can save ourselves. None of us can bridge the gap between our sin and God's holiness. We need Jesus. Don't leave tonight without knowing that you believe in Jesus. You know, what I love about this text is that it doesn't just give us our response to our sinfulness. As Isaiah continues, he gives us a picture of God's response. Because God doesn't just leave us in our despair, leave us with a picture of our sin, and then say, figure it out. No, he responds to the worst conceivable news with the best possible news. Look at verse 14. Follow along with me. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. The truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness can't enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then, by his own arm, brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Allow me just to make a couple of observations from that section of the sermon. I love the second half of verse 15. The Lord saw it and it displeased him. God saw that there wasn't justice, but then in the next verse, he notices that there's no one to intercede. There's no one to go between. There's no one to bridge the gap between man's sin and God's holiness. So what does God do? His own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. In other words, another translation says, God took matters into his own hands. This is an act of God. When he saw that humanity couldn't save themselves, God responded, God acted, God initiated, not because of his people's righteousness, but by his own purpose and grace. God's the one who does the saving. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says, Christ died for us. He initiated and we respond. But did you notice in verse 17, that sound familiar? Righteousness as a breastplate? Salvation as a helmet? Where do we read that? Ephesians 6. 
I bet you didn't realize that was in Isaiah 59. What did Paul do? He didn't come up with that. He stole it from Isaiah and then added to it, right? But I'm convinced that this passage changes our perspective on the armor of God. Because in this passage, it's not the armor of God. Let me phrase that differently. It's God's armor. This is another anthropomorphism. This is the picture that God is a warrior going to war, battle against sin. He's not going to tire in his fight. He's going to fight on behalf of his people. But then the armor changes after the breastplate, the helmet. It takes a little more of an offensive approach, doesn't it? He puts on the garments of vengeance. God's not going to go easy on sin. And so righteous, a a holy sort of anger against the powers of this dark world, he will pay for evil and eliminate it once and for all. And then there's a little word, the end of 17, we don't use very much. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Think about that word for a moment. You know, maybe we can consider what's been happening in Ukraine for the last 15 months. It's horrific. It's even in the news this weekend that missiles are attacking apartment complexes not even close to the front line. It's an unspeakable evil that God will not let go eternally unpunished. But for a nation like Ukraine, right after an invasion, there's zeal. We're going to fight. We're going to defend our land and our turf. I can only imagine 15 months in, the zeal would wear off. I'd get tired. But what does this text say? God doesn't lose his zeal. And God's fighting a bigger battle against a bigger enemy. But he's not going to lose his zeal to fight. God's not going to throw in the towel. He will never quit until sin is eradicated once and for all. But as we walk in the door tonight, we're living in this already not yet tension where sin was defeated at the cross, but it's not yet eradicated. It's lost its dominion over us, its power over us, but we still feel its effect in our lives. But the day is coming when sin will be eradicated forever, when the pain and the brokenness of life in this world will be forever erased. And in that day, when the new heaven and the new earth begins, then we'll find complete fulfillment in this text. But until then, don't worry. God's not going to stop fighting sin. He's not going to stop fighting for you in your battle against the enemy. He's not going to lose his zeal to finish what he started. There's no reason to doubt the outcome because the battle we're fighting has already been won. And we're waiting for the day when both salvation and judgment are fulfilled. But for me, as I read Isaiah's sermon, it's impossible not to see Jesus. You see any Jesus references in this sermon? No, the first that I notice really clearly is that word intercede. There was no one to intercede. There was no one to bridge the gap. That's what an intercessor is, someone who's a go-between. And when Jesus came as fully God and fully man, he qualified himself to be our substitute, living in our place, dying in our place, rising in our place, so that Jesus is the bridge. He's the go-between. That's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7, verse 25. Listen to what he writes. 
Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our intercessor. So what, if you know Christ, if you have a relationship with him, when the enemy comes and heals or hurls insults against you, that Jesus says, no, I've already paid for that sin. They're mine. I paid for that with my blood. And the accusations don't stick. But then in our text, verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion. Redeemer. It, it means someone who buys us back from slavery. In this case, it's someone who buys us back from slavery to sin. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. But that Redeemer will come to Zion. Yes, it's sometimes Jerusalem, but deeper than that, Zion is the place of God's salvation. It's where he saves. But a Redeemer will come to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. How would we summarize that in one word? Repent. That's part of our response, isn't it? That we look to Jesus by faith as our Savior, and empowered by the Spirit, we repent. We turn from our way of life. Well, you probably noticed I skipped the last verse of our sermon. Let me read that. It's the best verse. And as for me, this is God talking again. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that's upon you, my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is such a cool verse. As for me, this is my covenant, not a commitment, not a contract, his covenant, an unconditional promise he's making with them. Who's them? Well, cursory reading would make us think, well, it's the Israelites, right? No. Look back at verse 19. They shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising sun. The sun rises where? In the... So they'll fear his glory from west to east. The whole world. It's subtle. But Isaiah's picturing a day when God offers the new covenant of salvation through Christ, not just to the Jews, but to the whole world, to those who aren't ethnically Jewish, Jewish, to Gentiles. That's all of us, that anyone can respond to Christ by faith. Romans 10, 13, that if you call on the name of the Lord, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's you and me, we're in this text. But then the pronoun changes from them, in verse 21, my spirit that is upon you. You see that? Who's the you? It's the suffering servant, the Messiah. This is Jesus. The spirit of the Lord is upon him in his mouth, speaking the very words of God because he is God, and that word of Christ will remain in his offspring and his offspring's offspring from this time forth to forevermore. This is so cool. That if we know Christ, we're his offspring. And that 2,000 years later, what words are still coming out of our mouth? The word of Christ. The message, the good news of the gospel. But how does the story end? It doesn't. From this time forth to forevermore. That if we know Christ, we have a relationship with him for all of eternity. 
yeah, the bad news is bad. It's horrible. But the good news is glorious. We need both. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for an opportunity tonight to continue by diving into Isaiah. Um, it's easy sometimes to just skip over the bad news. But when we see how desperate, how needy we are, then we see the depth by which you reached to save us from our sin. So tonight, we just want to say thank you. Thanks for saving us. Thank you for having mercy on us. And if there's anyone tonight who hasn't yet cried out to you and just said those simple words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. May tonight be the night when they humble themselves before you, agree with you, admitting their sin and crying out to you because of what Christ has done on the cross for forgiveness and salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.